Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Yeah, so the first thing we're going to talk about is, is the church. Now, here's the thing. I've decided that at the conclusion of this series, what we're actually going to do is we're going to go into a series on the, we're going to, we're going to take our foundations theme and we're going to go into the foundations of focus. So we're going to re-hit the core tenets of focus, which those of you who have been with us from the beginning, we've already done and rest assured we'll do it again and again. But since we're talking about that in a few weeks, um, and a lot of that is the church, it's the nature of the church and what the church's purpose is, I'm just going to hit this briefly today. We're just going to give an overview and we'll really get into the details in a few weeks when we start talking about focus. Because who we are, what the core tenets of focus are, all come down to what I understand now the church is to be and to do. And so we want to save that for when we get there. But we will hit some uh, three key points this, e- this evening. So here's our overview. Matthew 16, 15 through 19 kind of introduces uh, the, the idea of the church. Jesus introduces it before the church is in existence, before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. We've actually looked at this passage in different contexts. When we talked about Peter, we looked at it. We've talked about it other times. Just to, to remind you, here's what it says. Jesus, first, he's, he's talking to the apostles, and he says, what are people saying about me? And the apostles say lots of things, basically. People are saying a whole range of things, which is... True still today, right? What do people say about Jesus? All sorts of things. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And he addresses this to the apostles. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So he's recognizing based upon what we've been talking about, the foundation. Here is Peter recognizing Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise and the fulfillment of the plan. That Jesus is what they've been waiting for since the very beginning of the fall. And so he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We talked a little bit about this already. We're not going to go over kind of the, the, the details a little bit, but I, but my understanding is that what Jesus is saying to Peter is not that Peter is actually himself the rock upon which the church will be built, but Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the recognition that Jesus is the son of the living God and the Messiah. That's the rock upon which the church will be built. And Jesus and Peter sort of gets credit for it, for being the one to articulate that at this moment. And I think Jesus is saying, that's it. That's what we're going to build from. But there's a couple of interesting things I just want to point out very quickly. And I've told you before, I don't often go into the Greek words, but I think that in the context, it's actually helpful at this moment to know a couple of things. So it's that phrase, on this rock, I will build my church. That rock being the foundation of declaration of confession of who Jesus is. He says, on that rock, I will build my church. And what's interesting is to know what these words would have meant to the hearers. Because remember, the term church is something we're very familiar with. But what was the word he was using to the apostles when there was no such thing as a church? There were, cynic, there were temples, you know, there were, there were uh, barely, there weren't really synagogues. Those were coming later. But there were temples. 
What did he? What would they have heard him say when he said church? What would they have heard him mean when he said, "I will build my church"? And it's interesting, also, given that this is in Matthew. One one thing to know about Matthew is that Matthew's context, a lot of what Matthew is about, is the idea of God with us. We've talked in the past about how Matthew was in really. He was a voice for the outcasts. He saw the gospel as being for everybody, <clears throat> and particularly for those people who were kind of on the edges and didn't have access to really the important things, to the government of Rome, to the power structures of Rome, that the gospel reaches out to them. And part of that is that Matthew preaches about a, 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 uh, the idea of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, that he's here. And it's interesting that in this context, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here too. So the first thing he says is he says, I will build. And that word build is a word that is, it's got the, the foundation of that word is oikos. And some of you may have heard oikos used as a word to describe the church. That's not the word he uses for church in this context, but it's a word which means household or dwelling. But not just building, but a place where you dwell. Sort of your family, your household, where you live, what you call home. So when he says, I will build, he's already saying, I, he's not talking about building a structure. He's talking about building a place where he will dwell, where God himself will dwell. Since it's Jesus, son of the living God, who's saying, I will build, they would have understood him to be saying, I'm going to build a place for me to live. In other words, a temple. That's how they would have heard even just the beginning of this sentence, that I'm going to build a place for God to dwell, to be with people. But then he goes on and he says, I will build my church. And the word he uses for church is ecclesia. And that means gathering or assembly. Now, it often had in the Roman world the sense of a very official assembly. So the ecclesia for Rome would have been like the Roman council. It would have been the Roman leaders. It would have been an administrative term, a civil term. So it does have this sense of gathering, but it also has this sense of something official. And so when you break it all down, what Jesus is saying here is that I am going to build a dwelling place for myself through the assembling of my people. And who are his people? Well, the rock that's going to build the building, the people that make up this dwelling place are those who declare that Jesus is the Messiah. So he, that's all he's saying. It's a, it's a pretty simple definition of the church. So if you're ever wondering what is the church, well, as Jesus laid it out for them just in this brief sentence, he's saying that the church is a dwelling place for God made of the assembling of all the people who believe that Jesus is God and is the Messiah. This idea of the church being not just a place where we gather, but an actual dwelling place of God through our gathering shows up a lot, in fact, in the New Testament. So just to quickly take a look at a few others. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, and then I skip to verse 16 because there are some verses in the middle. I encourage you to read, but when you do, you'll go, I see why David didn't read these. These are a little confusing. Um, we'll get into those another day, but for now, we're just looking at 9 and 16. He says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul is saying of the church, you are God's building. Here's that idea again. You are what he's building. You are that dwelling place. And he goes on, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, there are verses which talk about each of us sort of being a temple of the Holy Spirit, but that is not what this verse is saying. This verse is talking about the community. It's talking about the gathering, right? In your midst, he says, not just in you personally. In your midst, the spirit dwells. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. 
So Paul is making that same emphasis that Jesus did, that together as a community in your gathering, you are somehow the dwelling of God. So you can see right off the bat for the New Testament, for the early church, those who called themselves the church, for Jesus, the idea of church starts as a, as a very big idea that it is the dwelling place for God. I don't think we often think of it that way. Church becomes where we meet or, or it even becomes just people who like each other. But to see it as, in fact, the place that God chooses to dwell in our community, I think it makes it much bigger. And we're going to see some of the ramifications of that as we go. But let's take a look at another verse which, which, which uh, comments on this. He says, consequently, Paul says to the Ephesians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He means to each other, right? You guys, you, you were Greeks, you were Gentiles, you were Jews, you were all strangers to each other. He says, but that's not true anymore. Remember, we talked about tags a couple of weeks ago. One of the things we're already given at salvation is that we are part of a community. We may, not, we may not believe it. We may not take advantage of it, but it's true. That's in our account already. And this is what Paul's saying. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, oikos, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this is, that's not even, we don't even have to guess what that means. It's laid out pretty clearly. Paul is saying that the church is the temple of God where the spirit dwells, where the spirit lives. There is a correlation. Just so you know, I'm not, I'm not diminishing this. and shouldn't be diminished. It's really important. There is a correlation to the spirit dwelling in all of us corporately. Also, there's a correlation to the idea that the spirit dwells in each of us individually. That is something that scripture does also say. You might even remember, we looked at this verse a couple of times during the foundation series. Paul says to the Corinthians, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So each of us do have the Holy Spirit in us, even if we aren't gathered together as a temple, even if we haven't taken advantage of who we are as a community. But there is something significant and powerful about the church as a community being built up to become the dwelling place of God as well. <clears throat> it does kind of make sense if each individual stone, you know, Peter says we're each stones in the wall. Jesus is the cornerstone, but we're each stones part of this building. It does kind of make sense if each of us have the Holy Spirit in us that then all together the Holy Spirit is in the building itself, not even just inside, but even in the very essence of the building. That's who we are. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, we see a reflection of this both corporately and individually. Jesus says something which can be read either way. It can be read as a communal promise or it can be read as an individual promise. I think the fact that it can be read either way leads me to believe Jesus intended it to be read both ways, that both are true because we've seen it elsewhere. So I'm going to read you the context before I get to the one verse that's there. This is actually the beginning of the book of Acts. So we can, we can get the whole context leading up to this verse just by starting at the beginning. So Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And this is how he begins. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
So I love this picture because we kind of forget this. When Jesus came back, he didn't just pop in, say, good to see you all, and then pop out. He spent 40 days in a kind of boot camp for his apostles. It really is like a, I'm going to go, so you guys are going to carry on, so here's everything you need to know. So if you can try to think about what, are, what is everything Jesus would want them to know, it doesn't tell us, but it's an amazing picture, right? I love the fact also that he's speaking to them and presenting proofs that he's alive. You would think just speaking to them might be enough to prove it, but he knows that this is a big deal, so he gives them convincing proofs over and over and over. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I love the fact that they've learned so much and they are understanding that the kingdom of God is very different than they thought. But when the final analysis comes and Jesus is like the Holy Spirit's coming, they're like, that's amazing. Does that mean that what we've been expecting is finally going to happen? <laughs> Which, again, they're not completely wrong. He has been speaking to them about God's kingdom. He has been talking to them about the fact that the kingdom of God has come. And to hear that the Holy Spirit is going to be of all, all of them, it relates to prophecies they've heard. Joel made this amazing prophecy in which he said that young men and old men and young women and old women will all have the spirit of God on them, which was unheard of. Throughout the entire Old Testament period, they knew the Holy Spirit was something that came to people who had special anointing and special purpose and needed special power at special times. There were very few people who had the Holy Spirit like their whole lives. The Holy Spirit would come and go. Now, King David was an exception. He seems to have sort of had the Holy Spirit the whole time. But in one of his Psalms, you can see the fragility of it because he pleads with God not to remove the Holy Spirit from him. Others, the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit goes, there's prophecies, and then the Holy Spirit goes away. You know, when the power is needed, the Spirit of God comes. And But Joel makes this promise, everybody's going to receive the Spirit of God. Everybody's going to have the power and anointing that a prophet has. It's an incredible promise. And here Jesus is confirming it. And so it's no wonder that they're like, oh, this sounds like the moment. He says, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So he starts by saying, some things will never be in your authority. And the full completion of all this is not for you to know. And then he says this, but, but, which I think the contrast is there are some things that are in your authority. There are some things that you will have power for. There are some things the Holy Spirit has come to give you power, just like he did for all the prophets of old. He's not just coming for no reason. He is coming as a guarantee of the inheritance to come, but he's also coming to equip you for something. And this is what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And that's, that's sort of the end of this phase of the story in Scripture. And we enter what you can reasonably call the church phase, the phase where the Holy Spirit comes to reside in the people of God and move them to be his witnesses 
everywhere. There's really no other way to read Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth than everywhere. But it gives this progressive movement outwards, right? Here, then there, and then further. And this all began with him saying, don't leave Jerusalem yet because you don't have the power and you don't have the authority yet. But I also love the fact that even as Jesus leaves, God stays. You see that, right? As he leaves, the promise is the Holy Spirit will come and dwell you. So this God with us idea is still there. The Holy Spirit will be in the temple, which is us. This is the message of the gospel, is that we're never alone. God is with us. So this idea of the church, this is where we start, give you three quick ramifications of all this. The idea that the church is not just a, a social club, it's not even just a gathering of people, but it is assembly specifically of those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore become the housing, the dwelling, the, the, the temple, the church, the building, the oikos, the household for God. God himself to live in. It's an interesting thing that the Jews were wrestling with the question of who they were with a temple that was so fragile. See, once upon a time, they thought the temple was not fragile. It was huge. It was glorious. Then it got destroyed by the Babylonians. Then they had 75 years to figure out what it meant. And there began to be this rift among the Jews of whether it was more important to be people of the law or people of the temple. They rebuild the temple. And for a while, they kind of can postpone that argument. They continue to have it. This is, by the way, one of the distinctions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were people of the law. The Sadducees were people of the temple. You can't really say either one of them is wrong, but that's where a lot of their differences came in. But then the temple gets destroyed again by the Romans. And so from, they, they really wrestle with what it means. And so synagogues pop up and rabbis pop up. Rabbis replacing priests and synagogues replacing the temple. And it becomes a question of, can we worship? What do we do if we don't have a singular place to always go? But for the Christians, for the Jews who accepted the Messiah, God answers this question. He says, you are the temple. Wherever you are gathered, that's where God is. That phrase, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. That's not, uh, that's not specifically a, uh, an exhortation about prayer. I think individuals can pray and God's there too. That's an exhortation about the authority of gathering together. That only even just two or three who are gathered as a church are a church. And they are the temple of God. And what does he say? I am there. Because that's where he dwells. That's where God dwells is in his people. It's just such a huge thing. I could say it over and over and it won't help any, right? It won't help me and it won't help you. So I'll try to stop just saying it over and over. But I'm saying it over and over because I don't think we... I think it's important that we wrestle with and grapple with what a big deal that is. That God dwells in us. That holy of holies where we couldn't even go is now in the midst of us. It's not even like we're in the holy of holies. We become the holy of holies. So one of the first things we see just in the three brief things I want to tell you about the church. One of the first things we see is that the church is indwelt. It's, it's where God is. It's where God is in the midst of us. It's where the Holy Spirit resides. It speaks of our power. A lot of times we think the church doesn't have power. I think one of the biggest mistakes that the church made over the last 50 years was we kept telling people 
that the church didn't have enough power. So to really change the culture, what we needed to do was go get into politics or go get into journalism or go get into the arts or go get into movies or go get into pop culture, wherever it is. We kept subtly telling people the church in and of itself doesn't have a purpose except for you to go do something where there's actual power. And is it any wonder that today people think the church is irrelevant and has no power? And it caused us to become wedded so distinctly to things like politics that we lost sight of who we were and what our purpose was. But to be indwelt by God, to be the place where God lives, there's power in that. It speaks of our authority. We have authority for something, not for everything, just like he told the apostles. You don't know when the, when the end is coming, but you do have authority to be my witnesses. You do have power to be my witnesses. It speaks of a purpose. There is a purpose to being the temple of God. Building the temple was one of the most important purposes for the Israelites they ever experienced. Rebuilding the temple was the thing that brought them back together from all the ends of the earth to see themselves again as a nation. The building of the temple is a purpose. The Holy Spirit is also a guarantee, as Paul told us, as we saw in that verse. He's the deposit of the inheritance that's to come. I think, again, most of all, it reminds us that the gospel is about God with us. We are not alone. Hold that thought. Let's move on to one of the other ramifications of being indwelt. Romans 12, 4 through 8, Paul says this about the church. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, and so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it was to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul says here to the Romans, he says that we have all received grace. And that grace has led us to have certain gifts. And as we give each other those gifts... We become the body of Christ. It's very easy to say how, see how the analogy of being the body of Christ is not far removed from being the temple of God. I mean, we know that our own bodies house the real us. So too, the body of Christ should be housing the spirit of God and indeed does. But there's something about the spirit of God being in us that means we don't all look the same and we don't all act the same and we don't all have the same strengths. And that Paul seems to be encouraging here that we shouldn't pretend we do. I think that's huge. So often in any community, let alone the church, it all becomes about being the same, doing the same, and acting the same, speaking the same. Paul seems to be encouraging genuine diversity and not even suggesting it, but commanding it. If your gift is prophecy, prophesy. If your gift is serving, serve. Just whatever it is that you've been given, the grace of God, you have got to give that. This is part of being the temple of God is that each of us have a role in that job of being that building. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says it again, but here he directly connects it to the Holy Spirit. I think it's implied in Romans. It's stated explicitly in 1 Corinthians. He says, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is 
speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Each of our gifts are supposed to be a manifestation of God. You see that? And they're all different. But they're all for the common good. So this is something we see that becomes inherently part of being indwelt. And that, be, that is that we're not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but that makes us interdependent. We're not codependent in the sense that your happiness is or my ha that I'm responsible for your happiness in one sense. But we are interdependent in the sense that we all need each other and we work together with each other in order to reflect the manifestation of the Spirit which indwells us. We see these gifts of grace that Paul calls them and Peter confirms. Peter calls them stewardships of grace. And we see these gifts of the Spirit or spiritual gifts as we call them normally. Which is again just this idea that the Holy Spirit in us produces a gift which is good for the common good, for the whole temple as God dwells us. And that we are in fact like a body. Like a body is interdependent, so too are we. Paul makes that more clear. Many of you are familiar as he goes on to talk about if you're a hand, don't pretend to be a foot. If you're a foot, don't say you don't need the eye. If you're an eye, don't spend all your time trying to hear. You know, you are important. Be who you are. Exercise the gift God has given you. And the whole body needs that. And you need the whole body. So we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we're interdependent in our functioning in that way. And these two things lead us to remember the real purpose of the church, which is to become that temple. Remember, God said, I will build my temple. That building is still happening. Our job is to become the temple of God. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And we're going to see this verse a lot when we get to the foundations of focus. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He speaks to the community and says, God has appointed gifts for the purpose of helping the rest of us use our gifts for the purpose of loving each other so that we'll all be built up into the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's like we are the temple of God reflecting the, the spirit of God, but unless we are becoming what we are to become, we don't reflect the whole measure. We just reflect pieces of it. We just reflect an approximation of it. But the goal is to become so built, is to become so completely that temple that we reflect the whole measure of the fullness of God, that, that as the glory of God would fill the temple and be unmissable, so too are we supposed to be. Not glorifying ourselves through our gifts, but glorifying the full measure of Christ. But it only happens together in our interdependence. And it only happens because the Holy Spirit already indwells us. 
He goes on, he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of whom who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Notice what Paul is saying, the job of the church is, the job of all of our interdependent parts, the job of the church is to become. That's a weird way to think of the church. The job of the church is to build itself. There isn't a lot of things that are like that, right? So it's a little peculiar for us to realize. And we're so, we're such a a doing culture that it's hard to think of its fact that our purpose as a church is to become. That is our first and primary purpose. Now, if it helps you, if you feel like that's too insular and you're like, well, what about that being witnesses to the rest of the world? We're going to get to that in a second, but let me just say this quite simply. Think of the church not as a tool for you to use, but as a tool for God to use. But we're responsible for building that tool. So as we build that tool, then yes, God will use us to change the culture. God will use us to reach the world. God will use us as a witness But our job, the hammer's job, is not really to hammer. That's the carpenter's job. The hammer's job is to be a hammer. That's the church. Our job is to become the church. I think one way to think of this, the point of the church is this, and you know what I'm about to share with you is very spiritual because it's all alliteration. Every pastor knows that's the key. So we are, the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The church is interdependent. And I think the way to think of the church is that it's intended to be incarnational. Remember that whole idea of Jesus being the incarnation of God in the flesh. That every, when people looked at him, everything they saw was God. And, and that as Jesus did things, he was incarnating the will of God in front of them. Well, now we're the body of Christ. And now we're to be incarnational and we are to reflect that the church is not about doing, but it's about becoming because how can we become that incarnation of Christ? Cause you're messed up and I'm messed up. Agreed. Good. Glad it's not just me. How can we become the fullness of Christ when we're so empty? Even though we've been transformed by the gospel, there's so much sanctification still to be done in our lives. Somehow, somehow in that interdependence, our job as a church is to build each other up. A word that we often use is discipleship. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the foundations of focus. But this is the essence of discipleship is the church building itself up to be the church, to be the temple, to be the dwelling, to be the body of Christ to be the incarnation of God on earth. Which is only possible by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Discipleship is not about doing, but about becoming. We're helping each other become the fullness of Christ together. We're building each other up to build the body up. Acts gives us a picture of what this looks like when it's happening. I've been a pastor for a long time and I've spoken with a lot of pastors and I've read a lot of books and I can tell you the verses I'm about to show you are often used to depict what the church should do. And I'm going to tell you, I think we missed the point. 
What I'm going to read to you is not what I think telling you what the church should do. And trust me, lots of churches have tried to figure out how to do this. And it usually goes badly. And if you ever find someone who says, we're a New Testament church because we live just like this, I think they're probably lying to you. Or they're very strange. And strange might be okay. But I don't think this is telling us what we should do. I think it's giving us a picture of who we should become. This is what a church that is indwelt and interdependent and incarnational looks like. And this is what we want to look like. And we don't get there by doing it. We get there by becoming it. And this is it. Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is why if someone says to you, we're a New Testament church, according to Acts 2, 42 through 47, I say, do you guys meet in the temples every day? And usually they say, no, we focus on the part about meeting in our homes. And I said, well, they did both. <laughs> How's that? It, trying to make this happen, to do this, becomes virtually, if not actually, impossible in our current culture. So do we give up? No. We look at it and we say, who are we to become? Because I don't think Luke is saying, this is what the church decided to do. I think it's saying, this is who the church was. This is who they had become in the time of this early movement in the book of Acts. What does he say? They were devoted. They were devoted to following Jesus, to obeying him. They were devoted to each other. They were worshipful. They were devoted to being together and breaking bread and worshiping God together. They saw God work. I like that because that's a really hard one to do. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. When a church says we're going to do wonders and signs so people are be filled with awe, it rarely happens. But they saw it because of who they'd become. People were exercising their gifts and these things happened. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were loving each other. They were sharing in community. In fact, as soon as one of the people, there's a, there's a very famous moment where a certain couple in the church decides they want to try to do this, even though they don't feel it. And Peter and God come down on them very hard. They give up some of their land. They sell their land and give some of the money to the church and lie pretending they gave it all. And Peter says, don't you understand it's always been your land and your money? There's not a command here that you give your money. So why did you lie? Just be. They were at home and they were at the temple. They loved God and they loved each other. And the place they wanted to be more than anyone else was together with God. That could look a lot of different ways. It can even, I have become convinced only by God, because if you told me this six years ago, I would have said, nope, doesn't count, it's cheating. That can even be over Zoom. <sighs> 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 
They were grateful. They were grateful every day. And they were influential. But not because they went out to do influence, but because who they were was influential. They became influential. Because let's be honest, people who are grateful and devoted and happy and love each other and don't have any needs because they're always filling them for each other, that's influential. People like that. They'll look at that and go, that's got something. It's got something. And then I love this. Does it say they had these great evangelistic outreaches and every day they added to themselves the number who were saved? No, it's very clear who's responsible for the growth, the numerical growth of this church. And who is it? God. Because they're not doing. They're just being. I mean, I think, I think it's not up to us, and I think, frankly, it's not helpful for us to worry about the numerical growth. But I do think it makes sense to think about the fact that maybe all God is waiting for is for churches to be who they're supposed to be, and then he will gladly pour people into those churches. You know, even in our little way, in our groups, in our focus groups, I rarely, if ever, have said to my leaders or people in our focus groups, hey, go out and get people and bring them to your groups. But our groups grow. Now, they don't all grow the same way at the same time, which I think is a mistake to look for. But God has added, not daily, but he has added regularly to the number of people in our church. And I think as we focus on becoming and being, that will continue to happen. If we start focus on doing and adding, I fear that will cease to happen. So, that's who we are. That's what the church is. The church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, interdependent, needs each other, and we are becoming that temple, that incarnation of Christ. We are becoming. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.